Hello, my name is Andrew Gomison, and I am your host for the Speaking for Him podcast. Welcome to this week's episode. For those that have been listening for a long time, thank you for making this podcast a part of your weekly listening habits. And for those that are first-time listeners, I hope that you will find something to encourage you on this journey that we call the Christian life. And I'm uh, really excited about what I have to share with you today. Um, not necessarily the most exciting news, but it's important for us to be informed. And what I am talking about is we are going to have a life issues update with my special guest, Rebecca Kiesling. Now, some of you who have been listening for a while may recognize that name, and that's because a couple of years ago I had Rebecca on my show sharing her personal testimony of being one who was conceived in rape, uh, but God brought her through that uh, experience and caused her to be born and then to be able to grow up to be a powerful, confident, committed woman who became a lawyer whose primary goal is to defend the unborn through various avenues. And one of those particular avenues was to defend them against rapists who were trying to get paternity for children that had been conceived during heinous crimes, among other things. She's also a vocal advocate for life and speaks out against pro-abortion efforts to detain this all-important road to a pro-life America. And that is really what we sit down and dig into today. Uh, There were two particular issues that we addressed. One had to do with the abortion pill, and the second thing had to do with Garrett Solano, current gubernatorial candidate for the state of Michigan in the GOP, who made a really eloquent defense for life, even in the cases of rape and incest. I was very proud of his comments, but our own governor called them disgusting, and so that was the backdrop upon which our conversation Was based, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. But first, I want to talk to you about what is going on. Well, we start out today considering the truckers' convoy in Canada. First of all, I have to say that this is a very positive stand for freedom, and I applaud the efforts of the truck drivers. Now, it is kind of challenging in the sense that Canada has some different laws than we do here in the United States, so I'm not sure exactly what their freedoms are, but I really appreciate them standing up and saying, enough is enough, we do not want to take governmental uh, tyranny anymore from our Prime Minister, Uh, Mr. Justin Trudeau, and they are making a statement about that in a big way in Canada right now, and my prayers are with them. The primary story that I want to talk about, though, has to do with some controversy over people that have donated to them through GoFundMe. When it comes to the latest with GoFundMe, can you explain to our viewers uh, how the donation platform has been involved and really why they decided to make this decision? Yeah, this has been one of the most fascinating angles of this story. So this enormous freedom convoy captures the attention all over the globe. A uh, GoFundMe page is set up, and for those familiar with GoFundMe, you know you can 
go on there, create a page for just about anything to help someone with the bills for their, their cat that has to go to the veterinarian, or in this case, this massive demonstration that has captured attention all across the world. Uh, the intention of the GoFundMe page was to provide food, fuel uh, for the truckers involved in this protest. And GoFundMe allowed the money to come pouring in. Nearly $10 million in Canadian dollars ultimately came in. Then GoFundMe decided that the stand that didn't meet their standards, and this was going to be initially put on pause. They were investigating it. They paused the donations coming in. They allowed a million to be distributed, and then ultimately decided uh, they would no longer allow this fundraiser to continue. The big controversy came in when it was declared that the money that had already been there in the GoFundMe fundraiser that was raised would be distributed to charities instead of, of course, what the people who donated intended the money for. That caused an enormous controversy. Accusations of thievery and hypocrisy poured into GoFundMe, particularly from Republican uh, lawmakers, Republicans here in the United States, uh, saying that this is, isn't fair and that it shows a double standard on the part of GoFundMe. Ultimately, GoFundMe acquiesced, they relented, and determined that this money would actually be given back to the donors that sent it. Regina? Yeah, and Molly, I feel like in retrospect, that would make the most sense. If something happens with this donation campaign, the money just goes back to the people that sent it. And you mentioned the response from mostly Republican lawmakers. Uh, perhaps the greatest I, I want to ask you about being from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Uh, what can you say about the fact that he is now investigating this company? Yeah, you know, uh, the governor there in Florida, not alone. There are five attorneys general that have announced investigations into GoFundMe. And Florida Governor Republican uh, Ron DeSantis has talked about his attorney general uh, going after this, Ashley Moody. Uh, this is a tweet sent by the governor. He says, it is a fraud for GoFundMe to commandeer $9 million in donations sent to support truckers and give it to causes of their own choosing. I will work with AG Ashley Moody to investigate these deceptive practices. These donors should be given a refund. Ultimately, that's what happened. But there's really uh, gained, garnered a lot of attention for GoFundMe, perhaps not what they would have wanted uh, as people look to this site. And if that's how they if they trust GoFundMe now uh, to do what they say they're going to do with the dollars that are that are sent to the site. A couple things spring to mind when I listen to that story. And the first being that GoFundMe stated as a part of this, uh, the response to this that they took down the account for these truckers, which was valued at about $10 million at the time that it was removed, for violation of the standards of GoFundMe. Uh, and my first question would be, why did they have time to raise $10 million if it was a violation of standards? They should have known within the first hour or two that this was a violation of standards. And so by leaving it up there until it gets a high amount and then pulling it down at that point, you are basically just rubbing it in the faces of the people that disagree with you and making this political rather than a stand on a firmly grounded standard that you have had as a company for a long time. This is so reminiscent of the way cancel culture works in our culture today uh, because, you know, we've talked about story after story about this on the show, but it's really important to have these discussions because we need to make sure that we realize that a big part of freedom in America is freedom of speech and freedom to stand for things that are important. And so that's the first thing. You know, if you're going to say, 
hey, right out the gate, this violates our standards. We're not going to allow you to do this fundraiser. That I get to a certain extent. I might still disagree, but I kind of get it to a certain extent. But to wait until it's like a $10 million account and then pull it down is just egregious. And then the the other aspect of it is this threat from GoFundMe that they were going to distribute the funds from from this fundraiser to charities of their choice. People were outraged by this, and justifiably so. I have heard many stories of GoFundMe choosing to take down a campaign because it violated their standards or because something uncouth happened as a result of the GoFundMe fundraiser. But in all the other cases I can think of, these funds went back to the original donators um, to the fund. And that seems to have been their normal modus operandi, that this is what we do. We send the funds back to the people that donated because obviously they have to have all of the banking information for the donations to be processed, so they should be able to backwards process them to the people that gave them. But again, another political statement comes out of this when you turn it around and you say, we're going to donate to the charities of our choice with the money that you gave to this charity of your choice. And so it becomes this war of ideals where our ideals as a company are superior to your ideals. Again, I'm praying for the truckers convoy in Canada that it would bring forth some results. I know there's been similar events uh, here in the U.S. The reality is that we are reacting in a tyrannical way uh, to a virus that has a 98% survival rate, and we need to get back to the America where we value individual freedom and we're not pitting uh, people who make one medical decision against people who make another medical decision. And this is really a good story to lead into our main topic of today because when we go to the Rebecca Kiesling interview, we will be talking instead about a medical act that has a 2% survival rate and roughly a 98% death rate, and that is the abortion of our unborn. And so I think it's very important that we keep these things in perspective. This coming Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday, and it is Super Bowl 56, and this Super Bowl will pit the Los Angeles Rams versus the Cincinnati Bengals, and it's really an exciting Super Bowl in a variety of ways. First of all, it's two teams that are fairly young and are not perennially in the Super Bowl, although L.A. was there within the last four or five years. It's special because L.A. will be the second team in a row to play the Super Bowl in their home stadium. It's special because the two coaches are two of the youngest coaches in the NFL's history, um, and so they will be the youngest coaches to face off against each other in this game. It's also special because 
every year when there is the interview days down at the Super Bowl site, uh, many different media outlets go and get interviews and takes from the guys. And there's usually a few Christian players and coaches who are able to share about their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I wanted to share a couple clips from those events. One is from uh, Los Angeles Rams uh, receiver Cooper Cop, And then the, the other one is from head coach of the Bengals, Zach Taylor. And in both these cases, they give God the glory for the opportunities they've been given. Uh, this one will go to Jason Romano at Sports Spectrum. Yeah, hey, Cooper. Uh, this is so great that you're here uh, doing this. And we follow you on Instagram. Uh, you post uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, which talks about running the race and getting that prize. It's mm-hmm. been quite the race that you've run this year. When you think back to the beginning of this year and where you are now, what do you think is the great lesson that God has taught you and shown you when you look at this year? Man, that's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I think the thing that he has taught me is that, um, you will find, you will find that you are most fulfilled. You will find the most joy, um, when you are rooted in your purpose, you know, and, and um, specifically rooted in, in his purpose for you. And, you know, that to me has been one of the best things about this year of beyond all of the, um, all the games that we won beyond all the you know, honors, accolades, whatever um, it is, you know, I've just, I, I've had so much fun being able to play this game and, you know, my, my motivation, I touched on earlier, my motivation coming in to, you know, every single day is to run the race in such a way as to honor God um, and the passions that, and the um, talents that he has given me. And uh, when I'm rooted in that, I, I am at, I'm in a great place. I am able to play freely. I'm able to, um, you know, love my teammates. I'm able to um, be a better man, a better football player, a better husband, a better father um, when I'm living in that place. And, um, you know, I, I can truly, I truly believe beyond all that stuff. We had not won a game this year, um, but I had, you know, spent that time and, you know, was living in that place still of living freely. I believe I would, this would still be my favorite, the favorite, my favorite year I've ever been um, a part of playing this game of football because I've been living in that place. Um, I've been enjoying every second of, you know, being a teammate to the guys that are here and, um, and just being able to honor God every time I step in this, in this facility. So uh, I think that's the, the big lesson for me. Coach, good morning. You know, we've been talking to some of your players, Evan McPherson specifically, and in other situations like this, like coaches like Tony Dungy, uh, you know, where they're here this week excited. And and they've talked about things like, you know, faith and family and friends and then football. I'm just curious how those things line up for you and, you know, pressing into to, towards Sunday. In that order, you know, as you mentioned, and, um, you know, that's just how I was raised and, um, you know, certainly I'm a believer and, and, uh, you know, believe that my faith has put us in a position to do some really special things. Uh, my family is very important. You know, I think all of our coaches and players, families are, are a big part of this, the support systems that we have at home. Um, I've got the best wife going around, you know, and, and she's been so supportive and, uh, it's difficult for them too. And they get to enjoy these moments just as much as we do because they've had hard times. They've had to endure, you know, raising four kids by herself and, same thing with all these other coaches' wives and players' wives for the most part. We're gone a lot. 
And, uh, you know, and, and usually these are the times we spend with them in, in January and February. We're happy to not be doing that right now. I think they're happy that we're not around. Uh, but, but again, it is, it is fun to go through this process with them. I've got two boys that are 11 and nine years old. And, and this is, you know, this Super Bowl is, is huge for them. They get to enjoy that school from the, their schoolmates and their teachers. And, um, that part has been really fun that maybe people don't realize. We're here with the team. It's special. I love enjoying it with them, but I also love going home and seeing the excitement on my family's faces uh, when we've done all these great things that we've done recently. So just a couple observations from those two clips. First of all, when Cooper Cop said that if he had had the year spiritually that he did have this year and the Rams hadn't won a single game, he would still say that it was his best season of football ever uh, because the spiritual accomplishments are far more important than the ones that take place on the field. But he is very thankful that those spiritual uh, accomplishments that he has made have translated into the opportunity to have the platform of the Super Bowl to glorify God. And as he said, glorify God every day that he goes to the Rams facility to work. And then to think about Zach Taylor and his accomplishments to be a 38-year-old head coach in the NFL and to reflect on the success that he has had because he has put God before family, before football. And I just like the way in that uh, clip that he honors his wife for the sacrifices that she makes so that he can be away from the family and coaching football. So I haven't watched a whole lot of football over the last couple of years, but I am kind of excited about this Sunday's game um, for the reasons that were stated in these clips, but also because Matthew Stafford, formerly of the Detroit Lions, went to the Rams uh, in the offseason last year, and he is one win away from being a Super Bowl champion, and I've always liked Matthew so I am excited for him. As I said at the beginning of the show, I'm excited to share with you this interview with uh, Rebecca Kiesling. And uh, we talked about some pretty serious issues so I would encourage that if you have been listening with your kids in the car, that maybe you pause and wait for a future time to listen to this podcast. Very important topics, but very mature topics. So I just wanted to give that warning off the top. Before we get into that interview, I want to share with you our quote of the day. Our quote of the day comes from Randy Elkhorn. Um, on the issue of abortion in his book, Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments. And I think it's very important for us to have answers for the pro-choicers who come and challenge us because it's not enough to say, hey, I'm pro-life and being pro-life is important to me. We need to be able to answer their questions. And here's what Randy Elkhorn says. Even if abortion were made easy or painless for everyone, it wouldn't change the bottom line problem that abortion kills children. And I really think that this is 
an important thing to frame the discussion on the life issues. Uh, Because so often when we talk about the life issue, even I feel among some Christians, we look for the exceptions. We say, well, I know this is not a good thing. I know that abortion is wrong. But what are the exceptions? What are the reasons why abortion might be okay? And so for a lot of conservatives, they tend to make exceptions with rape and incest. But when you're talking about human life, the circumstances of a baby's conception have nothing to do with their value as human beings. And so what Randy is pointing out here is he's basically saying no matter how safe, quote-unquote, abortion became, which we know that it isn't if we study it for any length of time, but no matter how safe it became for the mother, we know that the inevitable result of abortion is the, the loss of a human life. So now I have the privilege of sharing with you the interview I did this week with Rebecca Kiesling. I want to thank her for sitting down with me, and I hope that you enjoy what she has to say. First, um, I want to ask you to give us an update on Save the One and what sort of things are you working on right now? Um, Well, with Save the One, I have an opportunity to speak in Guatemala in a month. Um, We have over 100,000 followers on our Spanish page, Salvar el Uno, um, which is, you know, Save the One, the 1% of you know, abortions that are due to the so-called hard cases, uh, rape, incest, or fetal abnormality. And um, so I, I got a unique invitation. I, I do speak globally um, quite a bit, not in the last two years since COVID, but um, this is really a special international event of pro-life leaders. And the Guatemalan president is hosting this at the palace. And um, he's making a big announcement there, and I'm I'm hoping I'll be able to go. (laughs) But um, I guess that would be the the latest thing. That sounds exciting. Uh, Yeah, we we often think about the pro life movement as pertains to the U.S. and justifiably so, but there there are life issues all over the world. So it's exciting that you can, Lord willing take the message of Save the One to the people of Guatemala, and we will definitely be praying for you as you do that. I'm also going to Malta in April 9th, and this will be my third visit there. They have no abortion, no exceptions, but they have a big election coming up, and they really fear that they're on the verge of, if they don't win this election, you know, abortion could become legalized. And, of course, they start with exceptions. So, It sounds like you're going to have some busy times coming up. We will definitely look for updates and keep you in our prayers. The primary reason for our interview today is because Rebecca called me, I think, last week and informed me that she had been part of a debate 
on, I believe, a Detroit area television station where uh, a young lady by the name of Jax Blackmore, I believe, claimed to have taken a an abortion pill live on the air. My guests, pro-life activist Rebecca Kiesling and reproductive health care advocate Jex Blackmore. Jex, I want to start with you in this segment. I've looked at your website and your social media. You seem to be promoting abortion pills, which the CDC did allow through mail order. Uh, in fact, there are posters around the country now promoting abortion pills. I guess, number one, are they dangerous? And number two, um, are you advocating stocking up on abortion pills in case Roe versus Wade is overturned? Yes, so they are incredibly safe, safer than Viagra or Tylenol. Uh, They've actually been in um, medical practice since 2000. So if you order it through the mail, they'd be the same thing you would receive if you were to walk into a clinic. And the change that recently happened is previously you had to actually physically go to a doctor to receive at least the first of the medication. And now you can get it sent to you through the mail uh, on a sliding scale. And um, and it is uh, extremely easy and uh, private and allows you to really self-manage your abortion. And Charlie, I just really, I want to share with you really quickly, like, this, this here is mifepristone. This is the first of two pills you would take to end a pregnancy, and it would induce an abortion, this very pill, um, by blocking the hormone and allowing a pregnancy to grow. And I want to show you how easy it is and safe it is by taking it myself. You're taking it. Are you? <laughs> are you not? Are you? You're not pregnant, are you? Uh, I would say that this is going to end uh, a pregnancy. This would be my third abortion. Wow. So I have some thoughts, of course, but first I I want to ask you what was going through your mind as this is transpiring. Um, I just thought that it was extremely tragic, incredibly brazen. I thought it was, you know, a a stunt. I mean. <laughs> You know, she, she contradicts herself because she talks about how it's extremely easy and private, and then she does it publicly. You know, like, okay, that's not private. Um, and just so callous. Um, it was also Charlie's birthday, and I just thought the whole thing was really disturbing. He had no idea she was going to do this. And I sobbed when it was all done. I mean, the first thing I thought of was to talk about women regretting it and that, you know, she makes it look like it's just a matter of swallowing a pill and then poof, the baby, you know, magically vanishes into thin there and that's all there is to it. You know, look how easy that was. Done. Like, it's all done. Like, no, it's not. No, with the second pill, you go through horrible contractions by yourself. You know, I have friends who have been through it. If anybody's seen Abby Johnson's movie, unplanned you'll see the reenactment of that scene where she goes through this alone in the bathroom and um expels her you know baby on the the floor and has to scoop and 
up the parts. And I mean, it's just horrific. And then in the movie, Abby didn't talk about this, but in her book, she does how she got an infection because not everything came out. And that happens quite often. And like many women, she was too ashamed to go to the emergency room, even though she was the clinic director for Planned Parenthood. She was too ashamed to go to the emergency room. Now you have all these women who are able to get it through mail order. There's not even a doctor involved. And you become your own abortionist. And then you think these women are, are going to want to go to a, a hospital and tell people what they did to themselves. And then I also think about, I didn't talk about this, but I think about all the men. There's been cases where men have poisoned their girlfriends, where they put these pills in their drinks because the girlfriend was refusing an abortion. And so they gave her the regimen of the two pills separately, put it in her drinks to kill the unborn child. And I get Google alerts for this kind of stuff. And, um, and it's been in the news where these men were being prosecuted. In certain states, they can be. Um, but other states like New York, where they've repealed every abortion law and every, you know, wrongful death for an unborn child, like, there's nothing you could do then. Like, they just get away with it. They just get away with murder. And all a guy has to do is order it in the mail. You don't even need a doctor involved and they can order it in the mail. It's really alarming. And then, of course, I talked about the abortion pill reversal, because a lot of people don't even know about that. And there have been thousands of babies saved through abortion pill reversal. But unfortunately, the um, American College of OBGYNs, who's become very political, they're very pro-abortion, they don't want women changing their mind. It doesn't fit their narrative. And so they'll say that the abortion pill reversal is not scientific and that there's no studies done. Well, there's no studies done because the pharmaceutical company doesn't want to consent to the studies. And there's the ethical dilemma of how are you going to conduct a study? You're going to find women who are going to admit to taking abortion repeal and are regretting it. And now, like, how are you going to identify that? You can't have women take get pregnant on purpose or even be pregnant and take the abortion pill on purpose with the hopes to um, reverse it. I mean, that would be completely unethical. But it, it's scientific. What happens with mifepristone, the first pill, is that it um, depletes uh, the progesterone, okay, so that the baby's not going to get nutrients. Uh, that's the normal hormones in a pregnancy. And I had low progesterone with my last child. And I had to take progesterone. That is common. It's completely scientific when you have low progesterone to give progesterone to save the baby like what's not scientific about it that's done all the time it's just that this time the progesterone was depleted like on purpose with a pill but it's completely scientific to give a woman progesterone um and like I said there's been all these document cases of of babies being saved um and and you know none where women have died or anything like that so uh, it's just it's very frustrating the narrative around abortion has been very interesting to say the least for several years. I remember in the Clinton years, 
in the 90s, his mantra was always that abortion needs to be safe, legal, and rare. That was always the the presumption was that he was fighting for safe, legal, and rare abortion. But now with the blatantness that's going on today, you get the exact opposite vibe. Like you said, there was nothing uh, private about what Jax did on this broadcast. And the thing is, abortion has always been one of the least regulated industries in in our country. And that's one of the reasons why, specifically the state of Michigan, and I'm sure other states as well have taken that tact where they have legislatively said you need to meet basic uh, standards for medical facilities in order to be an open abortion clinic. And that has caused several to close in a variety of contexts. As I heard you talk about this, when you called me, I grieved. And then when I watched that video, I grieved again. It is scary how easy it is to throw away life. And I think one of the reasons why this is such a prominent way to end all of life, above and beyond just the the restrictions that certain states are having, is that the least personal it can be, the better it is for the abortion providers. Because if you go in to an abortion clinic and you get an ultrasound for the purposes of them finding out how long, how far along you are, there's at least a chance that you might see that ultrasound. And I know several years ago when I was working for Right to Life of Michigan, they said that they had done a study that said 90% of women will choose life if they see their baby on an ultrasound image. You know, for any women who have been through an ultrasound, you know that they do all kinds of measurements and they're taking all kinds of pictures of different angles where you look at the screen and you don't really see anything. It looks like you know, there's nothing there, really. It's hard to tell what, what's there until they, the technician zeroes in on your unborn child and then gets you that perfect little profile snapshot of your baby. And that's what you get sent home with. That's what every woman gets sent home with. You think uh, an abortion clinic is going to take the time to get you that perfect little profile of your baby? You know, they could just easily just show you whatever, and there's your blob of tissue, you know, and you don't know what you're looking at. Um, And I just got a Google alert today in New Hampshire. uh, There was a news story that the Republicans in New Hampshire repealed their ultrasound law that said that a woman had to view an ultrasound before having an abortion. And they repealed it. So now you only have to, to do it if you're 24 weeks and you're and you um, want an abortion for fetal abnormality, like then you have to have an ultrasound. Um, and just how horrific, you know, 24 weeks and you're gonna be allowed to kill a baby who has disabilities. Um, and, and the fact that the Republicans did it. They are very good at manipulating the narrative and whatever they want to focus on is, is what they focus on and what, they don't want you to know is that there are a large number of minors that they have no problem uh, giving abortions to. They, they, they like to say that they have a bunch of standards that prevent people from getting abortions under coercion or underage, but there have been numerous stings where people have posed as minors and 
Planned Parenthood sweeps that stuff under the rug. And not to mention that a lot of the good things that people claim they do are only that they refer for those things if you're lucky. Their primary focus is abortion. And I always tell people, I say, you can still try to claim that you have the legal right to an abortion, but technology has advanced to the point where you can no longer say that the abortion you're getting is not murder. And that's what we need to uh, continually focus on is that these are lives. These are babies. And, you know, people use the rape and incest exception and you are a living example of how that is unacceptable as well. Um, back to Jax, you know, that's not even her real name. It turns out like I had no idea when I was going on that program that I was going up against someone who was using a pseudonym, hiding her identity and that she was the founder of the satanic temple of Detroit. And she got kicked out of the satanic temple by the national leadership because she was too extreme because she did a documentary, um, Hail Satan. And in her interview for that documentary, she had, I guess, like pig's heads on stakes and said that they were going to, you know, disrupt, disturb, destroy, and that they were going to kidnap an executive, um, you know, flood the governor's mansion with snakes and execute the president. And somehow she's not behind bars today because she convinced, I don't know, I guess Secret Service that it was um, all drama, that it was dramatic, that she's a satanic artist. I mean, that's what she has on social media, that she's a satanic artist. So I'm like, I don't even know if this is real. She says it's real, but, you know, who knows with her? She also has this like cult group you can see on social media, um, Sex Militants. And I mean, she just posts really, really vulgar, bizarre stuff. But the sad thing is that she is being propped up as a hero and the national news outlets aren't talking about how she's a satanic leader and this bizarre sex militant and all the weird stuff she posts. And um, I mean, it's really, really disturbing. And my daughters told me, I have three teen daughters and they said that their friends we're contacting them saying, hey, isn't this your mom? Because they see it on TikTok. And, you know, within a, a few days on TikTok, my daughter said that there were like 180,000 likes, like of support for what Jax did by young people on Twitter. I mean, that is so disturbing. These young women have no idea, like, why this woman is not their role model. And and they're under the impression that that's all it is. You take a pill and it's done and it's over with. Um, and I I said on social media that, you know, I feel like this is like a drone strike. You know, and imagine someone sitting there behind a computer just callously saying, look how easy it is. You know, you just push a button. It's so easy. And the rest of us are sitting there like horrified because we know the carnage which will ensue the tragic loss of life. But there, you know, you have somebody just saying, look, it's so easy, just push a button. Or for her, it's so easy, you just pop a pill. And you don't see the aftermath of what happens. Yeah, it's interesting how even with the the heartbeat bills and specifically the one 
that has passed in Texas and has been a big fight in the courts, they frame it, instead of being a heartbeat, they frame it as cardiac activity because they know that if they allow the word heartbeat into the conversation, they've lost because we all know that what happens when you stop a beating heart is death. So that means that a beating heart signifies life. And so that's why they have to come up with phrases like cardiac activity. What's interesting um, about, because I've been really involved in heartbeat legislation nationwide, like before it was cool. I was there testifying and involved when the supporters of Heartbeat, Janet um, Porter, had very little support from people. And uh, so one of the things that that they talk about the doctors, the pro-life doctors, is that a heartbeat is considered to be a viable pregnancy once there's a heartbeat. And, you know, you probably heard this before, but a third or a quarter to a third of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So they act like no big deal. You know, you miscarry all the time. You naturally abort all the time. No big deal. Well, once there's a viable pregnancy, once there's a heartbeat, a detectable heartbeat, the miscarriage rate plummets to only 3%. And I had what you call I had two miscarriages with what you call a blighted ovum, where I had a positive pregnancy test, but the baby never developed. So when I started bleeding and went in for the ultrasounds at six weeks or um, five weeks and seven weeks, there was no beating heart and like the sac was empty, but never developed. The baby never developed because there really wasn't um, full uh, conception, essentially. And so you have a lot of women who have a blighted ovum. They're not even really pregnant, yet the abortion industry doesn't want to do an ultrasound, doesn't want to see if there's a heartbeat because they're, they'll make money over you. You know, just think about it. If 25 to, um, 25 to 33% of all abortions, um, aren't even actual pregnancies, aren't even viable pregnancies, you know, they're making all this money off of women who would naturally miscarry because the baby never developed. And so here you have all these women thinking that they killed their baby when they didn't, you know? Um, And why wouldn't you just want women to know if you don't have to have this procedure, or I mean, nobody needs to have it, but from their perspective, you know, why wouldn't you want women to have informed consent to be knowledgeable about what they're doing? It's, they don't care because it's an industry and they just want the money. If viability means a beating heart, viability for the Supreme Court should mean a beating heart, not whether a baby can survive out of the womb. And I agree with you. You couple that with the fact that even even the survival out of the womb version of viability increases every single year. Like we're always hearing about earlier and earlier babies surviving their birth and actually thriving. I know I was born at 29 weeks in 1979 and that's part of the reason why I'm in a wheelchair because they only had adult respirators and I lost oxygen for a period of time after my birth and that's what caused me to have brain damage that put me in the chair. But I know that our babies that are born earlier than I was 
today that are thriving and completely normal because of the advances in technology. That's right. And my friend Brad Smith with Save the One, um, he's vice president of Save the One. They, he and his wife had a daughter who has trisomy 18 face. And he makes that point all the time that medical breakthroughs occur when you treat the so-called hard cases. That's how doctors become better. And it creates improvements for everyone. Like you said, they didn't have the equipment for neonatal care back then. But when you treat the most difficult cases, everyone, all of healthcare improves. Well, and and we don't understand as a world viewpoint, we don't understand that when we devalue the smallest and most vulnerable among us, we devalue everyone. Um, I read a statistic a while back that said that, you know, abuse in the, you know, child abuse in the mid to late 70s went up like 30% after abortion was somehow acceptable because we we started the process of saying, well, if our most vulnerable humans aren't valuable, if they are, are not considered persons, then why should I treat the humans that I'm on the earth with any better? And I, it's just really sad to me that people don't realize that, hey, the bottom line here is that we we were created by God, and the reason that the abortionists are having a field day today is because they don't realize that the devil hates us because we're made in God's image. So he will do anything he can to undermine God's image, and he's blinded their eyes to believe that this is an appropriate uh, behavior. So before we move on, you mentioned being shocked about uh, Jax's true identity and about, um, so, uh, obviously, the main thing that went on during this interview. So how was this interview framed? How was it set up? What was the request like when you were first approached? Well, I've been on this program a lot, um, Fox 2, Let It Rip. It's a political debate show. And it's different, you know, not being in studio and doing it via Zoom. Um, there's a little bit of a delay where you can't even chime in. You know, so you have to really focus and wait till someone's done speaking. I mean, you can't even, it's hard to focus hearing your own echo on the show. So um, I had to kind of sit there and wait. But he contacted me to see if I wanted to discuss the Dobbs case, which is in front of the Supreme Court. And it's estimated they'll, they'll make a decision in June. And that is a 15 week abortion ban out of Mississippi. And uh, a lot of people are anticipating it will overturn Roe v. Wade. Personally, I think that they're going to stick with um, short sort of judicial restraint where you only decide the case that's in front of you, which is a 15-week abortion ban. Um, so I don't think that they're going to totally overturn Roe. I think they may chip it away to the point of allowing this abortion ban at 15 weeks. And then they'll wait for a heartbeat case to decide that issue of whether they'll uphold an abortion ban beginning with a heartbeat. And then there's, you know, the Mississippi law that was passed where there's um, a complete abortion ban from conception. So I think they'll wait until cases get in front of them and then they'll decide. Um, but that's what we were supposed to be discussing. We did at the very end. And then he also said that we would discuss the abortion pill because Biden, in anticipation of Roe v. Wade possibly being overturned through the FDA, he somehow permanently made it legal to get the abortion pill 
through, and it's really pills, there's two pills, um, through the mail, which is like insane. Um, so he did that in December. And so, okay, so Charlie said we would talk about that. Okay, I was prepared for that. I was not anticipating what happened. Um, and I sobbed afterwards. I mean, I, I believe that this, she really did this. And then, you know, the tragedy of people don't see, she's setting it up like that's all there is to it. You take a pill and it's all done and over with. And it's just. Well, I have to say, I applaud your response. Some people were confused by your response, but I think that given the fact that you were so shocked, you didn't have time to formulate, you know, a detailed response to what was happening. It's just, you know, a split second of something extremely tragic. And of course, there's always the possibility that she didn't actually take that pill, but whether she did or did not, it still sets a bad example for our youth and it sets a bad example for the movement in general, especially for those who do have abortions in desperation. Doesn't make it right, but she painted a totally different picture than what the abortion uh, industry has been pushing for so long, that this is a difficult decision that you normally do in, in strict desperation. And then for her to take the pill as cavalierly as she did, and then to say, this is my third abortion and there's no big deal, that was just beyond yeah. the pale. I mean, you know, I didn't want to say anything to her like, oh my gosh, you're horrible. How could you? You're killing your baby. Like, you know, there's a lot of women listening who are post-abortive and some of my dear friends regret, you know, aborting. And I feel like we do need to be careful with our words. Um, and I, I think it would, I, I'm glad, I mean, I talked about, you know, having to scoop up your baby off the floor. I, I feel like that, that I'm glad I talked about the abortion pill reversal because I feel like it was important to give women hope, women who have taken the pill and, and also maybe prevent women from taking it when they start to hear that, you know, women change their mind and they, they're even looking for abortion pill reversals. So they think about like, you know, yeah, oh, you got to take a second pill. It's not over with the first. Like, oh my gosh, yeah, if you change your mind, that would be so hard to take the second pill. Like, what do you do? And hopefully that'll help prevent people from even taking it in the first place. Well, I'm really glad that I didn't say anything, you know, condemning, like, oh, how you're a horrible human being. How could you? Or, you know, I, I didn't say, you know, oh my gosh, you're murdering your child just like that. I mean, there's a lot of post abortive women who regret their abortions and they're wounded. And um, I, I'm glad I started talking about women regretting their abortions and what the aftermath is really like so that they know that there's a second pill. It's not just one pill and that, um, you know, you're going to be alone, like passing your baby and having to pick your baby up. Um, so I, I I'm hoping that when women think about that and they think about like abortion pill reversal, that that's a thing because women do change their mind, um, that it will help, you know, of course, women who have taken the one pill to know that they can do the reversal, but also help prevent women from ever considering taking any of the pills in the first place. If they think about women regretting this and they think about that, it's more than just, you know, 
popping a pill with a sip of water, hopefully that'll help save lives and, and they won't contemplate taking it in the first place. I really hope that's true. It's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And if you get help, then you can avoid this. But if you if you go through with it, then you can't possibly go back and say, I would, you know, I wish I didn't do it. So let's undo it because there is no undoing abortion. And so we need to make that very clear. Yeah. And not every baby, not every woman that does the um, abortion pill reversal uh, is able to save her baby. You know, it's, it's not foolproof. There are thousands of babies who have been saved, but there's a lot of babies who still died. Yes, absolutely. And so, so I think that the biggest thing that we uh, in the church need to be doing is to just reinforce the fact that uh, we are all made in the image of God, that that image uh, starts to be put together in the mother's womb. And so we can't make a determination when after that, that, that abortion is still allowed. I remember even asking my own cousin and uncle who are uh, liberal, well, if you can just tell me, when do you think abortion ceases to be acceptable? Um, Because I was born six months along, was I human? And then my uncle went off on this a little bit related, but quite unrelated diatribe about how I was valuable because my parents wanted me. And this is my own uncle saying this, but the fact of the matter is I wasn't valuable because my parents wanted me. I was valuable because I was created in the image of God. And that happened in November of 78, not in May of 79. So, Mm -hmm. so we're going to transition to one more topic uh, of the day. And that is, um, uh, Michigan gubernatorial candidate Garrett Solano, who some of you may recognize the name because he was behind the Unlock Michigan petition of 2020, and he has been very vocal about helping people in Michigan maintain or regain their freedom, and he is a very principled man, and he had one of the most eloquent arguments against the rape and incest exception. A lot of pro-life politicians make the mistake of saying, oh yeah, I support abortion for rape and incest. But one thing I always tell people is that the humanity of the child is not based on the circumstances under which that child is formed. If it was, then I could simply say that I don't believe my baby is human which is essentially what we do when we allow it to be aborted and thus it's not human, but we are not the ones that determine humanity. God is. And so I was really heartened by his response. And then I get it. There's a lot of situations out there. Um, when you talk about rape and everything else and Hey, may, may, maybe they deserve an abortion. We're always going to fight for life. And I have a great personal story of one of my mentors and he was going through life and he was adopted. So he started to look up his birth family to figure out who they were. And he figured out that his mom was gang raped in a subway um, train station by five guys. Mm-hmm. And it kind of like tore out his heart when he found that out. But then he started to really appreciate and understand what his birth mother went through, that she had the courage to deliver him. 
And mm-hmm. since then, since he was delivered, he has helped thousands of people be better versions of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so what we must start to focus on is not only to defend the DNA when it's created, but however, how about we start inspiring women in the culture to let them understand and know how heroic they are and how mm-hmm. unbelievable that they are, that God put them in this moment and they don't know that little baby inside them may be the next president, maybe the next person that changes um, humanity, may get us out of the situation, maybe in the future. We don't know that. Mm-hmm. So that is what we must do is start to create that culture. And there's already a culture for that. Catholic Charities is a great one that they help these moms go through and deliver and give these kids up for adoption. I have lots of friends who have adopted kids because they can't have children naturally. And so we must always, always protect that DNA and allow it to have a voice. Now, the Whitmer uh, campaign for re-election came out with a statement saying that these were disgusting comments on the behalf of Mr. Solano. But the thing that I often think of when I hear these comments from the left is what are you saying to your own children? Like you're here simply because I made a decision at that particular time that I could handle having you around. But if, if I didn't think so, then I would have had you killed. I mean, that just there's no logic to that to me and i re, i also remember famously a couple of years ago when hillary clinton said i wish that abortion had been available to my grandmother and i was thinking if abortion was available to your grandmother then wouldn't logic dictate that you would not be here today i mean people don't use logic when they think about this stuff well first of all that's actually the first time i heard the whole clip um, and I've talked to him on the phone and Garrett Soldano did not mention about his friend. Um, I don't know how, how you found it, but all of the Google alerts I was getting, nobody mentioned that. They started with the part that he said that, um, you know, how about women being told that they're courageous and that, you know, this child could be the next president. Um, and that's, that's what the headlines were. I get Google alerts for anything conceived in rape, pregnant by rape, mother from rape. And the headlines across the country were mocking him for saying that the child conceived in rape could be the next president. That was literally the headline that, that how absurd that he said that the next, that that child could be the next president. Well, um, in fact, there have been that, that we know of two presidential candidates who were conceived in rape, Uh, Jesse Jackson, Democrat. He had been outspokenly pro-life until he ran for president as Democrat. And then he changed his position on abortion. But his mother was like 13. She was raped by her, the next door neighbor who was in his thirties. And he was raised by his mom and then stepdad who ended up adopting him. Um, And that's how he got the last name. Jackson from his stepdad who ended up adopting him. And then John Cox ran for president several years ago, and he most recently ran for governor of California. And he was conceived in rape as well. And then there's my friend who is running for um, a U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania. And um, 
she was a former Fox News um, contributor. And I actually called her and, and you know, she, she, it's tough running for election. She's, she's running second right now in Pennsylvania. And it's tough being, you know, she's, she, for the Republican primary, she's kind of, you know, running in second. And uh, it's, politics is tough. <laughs> and here she put herself out there and she tells her story. Her mom was like 12 or 13 when she was conceived. And so she could be the next U.S. Senator from Pennsylvania. And then she could very well after that be the next president. You know, why not? Why would you say that she can't be president? Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, for them to sit there and, and make fun of it, like it's just absurd to say, to think that a child conceived and could never be president, that's just discriminatory. It's so discriminatory and dehumanizing, demoralizing. Why do you say that to an innocent child? Well, and I think it goes to the victim mentality too, though, because I I remember hearing some some of the oral argument stuff out of this abortion ban that we were talking about earlier with the Mississippi 15 week ban and, and the pro abortion side was saying, well, you can't really be successful as a woman if you're saddled with a baby and you have to raise children that really limits your success as a woman. And they're saying this to a woman by the name of Amy Coney Barrett, who is a mother of seven and is a U.S. Supreme court justice who has a distinguished legal career on top of being by all accounts from outside sources, an excellent wife and mother. So she's basically proving their very argument wrong. She's the wrong lady to make that argument in front of. And yet people still try. And it just, it, the, the narrative is that children are a burden. And Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And then the other thing I think of when I think of this is we're 49 years in on row, which means we're fast approaching a generation of grandparents that are not here because a group of justices in 1973 decided to circumvent every pro-life law that was already on the books. And as you and I have discussed in the past, Michigan has one of the most pro-life laws in the nation, which was struck down by Roe. And to just oh, think that we have three generations of people potentially that aren't here because justices decided that babies did not deserve life from a very, from the 14th amendment, which ironically was used before Roe to stop people from having abortions. Well, I, our, just to clarify our 1931 law in Michigan, which is the law, which protected me. Um, and, and Michigan has always had an abortion ban. The, when, at the founding of our state, we had an abortion ban with no exceptions. Um, it's just that the original ban was kind of archaic. It talked about a quick fetus. And then the 1931 law made it, you know, from conception, complete abortion ban. And again, no exceptions. That's the law which protected me when my birth mother sought to kill me at two illegal abortions. That law was not struck down by Roe v. Wade. It's still on the books, and there was a Brickner case right afterwards that was a U.S. that was a Michigan State Supreme Court case 
that said in light of Roe v. Wade, it's unenforceable, but it was never repealed. And it wasn't repealed by implication either. They just said for now, in light of Roe v. Wade can't be enforced, but they did not say that it's repealed. So as soon as Roe v. Wade is overturned, that law will be in full force and effect here in Michigan. And that's why the parole boards just two weeks ago got a petition drive approved here in Michigan. Um, they have until July to collect enough signatures to get it on the ballot to not just repeal that law, but to amend the Michigan state constitution to allow for a broader right to abortion than under Roe v. Wade. So if this constitutional amendment gets passed, if they get enough signatures, and if it gets passed here in Michigan, it would repeal, undo every pro-life law ever passed here in Michigan. That's what we're facing right now. And so we need to let people be aware of how dangerous this ballot is. Their language says that it would ensure a right to reproductive freedom, including but not limited to abortion, fertility treatments, pregnancy care, I mean, you know, um, birth control. And it, they make it sound like if you don't sign this petition and if you don't approve this amendment in November, then you don't get fertility treatment. You don't get pregnancy care. You don't get um, birth control. You know, it, so it was really manipulative that they worded it this way because they knew that they would play on people's ignorance and their misunderstanding of what exactly this amendment is all about. Well, and, and that's what all of media seems to be right now, or at least the vast majority of media seems to be about playing on people's emotions and playing on the fact that they're not going to research what is actually going on. I've had conversations with people where I will say, They'll say, well, I, I heard this on NPR or I, I heard this somewhere else. And I would be like, well, did you research it? Did you look at it and see if it was true? He's like, then, and they would be like, no, I believe them. Yeah. Like, and, and the reality is, like you said, when you were talking about the Garrett Solano thing, all the stories you, you saw had no mention of the friend that he mentions in that audio clip. You wouldn't want to humanize that child, right? They don't want to talk about real people. It's the same thing with, with babies that survive abortion, like Gina Jessen or Melissa Odin. They can't acknowledge that because if they acknowledge that, then they'd have to acknowledge it was life. Well, it was really great to be able to talk to you about these things. Uh, to my listeners, I would just say, please be exercised about this ballot initiative. Uh, you know, look it up, read more about it, and just realize that the the liberal left often couches their initiatives as something completely opposite of what they're actually doing. You know, that they're saying that this is going to give more freedom to the women that they are reaching out to, but it really is a snare. You know, and it's because... The devil is one who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and his favorite thing to destroy is, is human life. As we close today, I just wanted to ask you, what is coming up for you in the next couple of months and how we can pray for you? Uh, well, 
like I said, I'm you know speaking internationally, but um, also just <sighs> trying to be as active as I can and get the message out there, help get people's stories told, get more stories published as I had always done. And, um, you know, keep maintaining our, our social media presence um, to keep fighting the fight. It's been hard. I've had a, a difficult last couple of years. Um, so I'm trying to get back at it. Uh, but life has been very difficult. So I just appreciate your personal prayers um, for me. Continue to pray for, for Rebecca and for me as we, uh, you know, try to stand in the gap and, and speak truth to a culture that even often among those who claim Christ do not have a good grasp on the truth. Uh, we need to make sure that we know what we're talking about because the devil's lies look like truth, he, but he doesn't have any of his own material. So he borrows the material that God has and he twists it for his own purposes. And that is definitely what he has done in the pro-life movement. But we know that life wins and we know that Jesus will eventually make things right. But as we are his ambassadors here on earth, we need to make sure that we are ambassadors for life. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rebecca, for coming on. And it was really great to talk to you and we'll definitely keep in touch and I will definitely be praying for you. And I encourage my listeners to do the same. Okay. Thank you so much. Andrew. Thank you once again, Rebecca Kiesling of save the one for coming on the show and discussing these important life issues with me. I would encourage you to share this with your family and friends to let them know about what is going on in the pro-life movement. We as Christians need to make sure that we are affirming of life because Jesus himself was. He said that he has come to give us life and to give us life more abundant. Our founding fathers believed that life was the foundational right of all American citizens. So will you join the fight today? Have a great week and keep serving the best of masters. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Your host has been Andrew Gomison, founder of Speaking for Him. For more information on today's show and to leave us comments and voicemails, visit speakingforhim.blogspot.com. You can find Andrew's ministry at speakingforhim.com. That's speaking, the number four, H-I-M. You can also interact with us at facebook.com slash speakingforhim and on Twitter at Speaking for Him. And when you look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, let us know what you think of the podcast by leaving a rating and review.